Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. And this is Jill Wine-Banks from Two Different Generations. And today's hashtag Jill's pin is a vote pin because there's primary voting going on now and nothing is more important than getting out the vote and every one of us voting. 100%. Like Jill said, the primary season is well underway. Over the weekend, South Carolinians voted in the first official Democratic primary state, and President Biden won with a whopping 96% of the vote. On the Republican side, it seems all but certain that Donald Trump will end up being the Republican nominee, although Nikki Haley has ramped up her attacks on his criminality, immorality, and mental abilities, and that may have some impact, as might a criminal conviction. As the general election approaches, what should you pay attention to? Do polls mean anything this far out? And how can we get young people especially to be civically engaged in this election and turn out in droves? Let me just say, when you said that Nikki Haley has ramped up her attacks on his mental abilities, it's more on his mental inabilities. And today, Victor and I are very lucky to have with us someone who can help answer all those questions, Larry Sabato. He is a leading political scientist at the University of Virginia, where he is the director of the Center for Politics, which promotes civic engagement and student participation. Larry also publishes a newsletter called Sabato's Crystal Ball, which has provided very accurate electoral analysis and projections and has written numerous books on a wide range of political topics from media ecosystem to the rise of political consultants to the Kennedy administration and assassination. He has also won four Emmy Awards on documentaries he made. We will talk about all that. Thanks so much for joining us, Larry. I'm always pleased to be with the both of you, uh, Jill and Victor, and I think you do a great job in getting some basics across to people and in keeping the media honest and keeping politicians honest, and that's what a good citizen does. Oh, well, thank you. And we are we are also very excited to have you on. And we want to start um, by actually having maybe us and our audience get to know you a little bit better. We know you as one of the leading political scientists in our nation, as someone who does so much to bring young people into politics. But um, we want to learn some maybe less known but very interesting facts about you. Um, your initial research in politics focused on the two-party system, which seems especially relevant um, now as it's becoming increasingly evident that we don't really have a functioning two-party system. So what were the two parties like when you first started looking into them? Well, my political experiences started in 1960. Unlike most academics, I got my start in practical politics and then uh, after helping to lose a number of campaigns, uh, edged uh, into the uh, academic side because the old saying is true: if you can't do, teach. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am kidding a bit, but there is some truth to it. But look, w- when I started out, uh, of course we we emphasized the differences between the two parties. Uh, in 1960, for example, if you go back and examine what Kennedy said and what Nixon said and what their real positions were. I'm not going to use the Wallace phrase. There's not a dime's worth of difference between Democrats and Republicans, but there really wasn't very much substantive difference because they talked so much about the Cold War and the need to, you know, uh, keep the Soviet Union at bay and so on. 
And, and that, um, that was typical of American politics for a long time. Um, I was uh, living abroad at the time of the Ford Carter uh, contest. And I, I can still remember uh, British students asking me um, to explain how Carter and Ford really differed on all these fundamental issues. And I had to struggle to, to come up with, with clear differences. Now, Carter governed, I think, in a very different way, and he became uh, more liberal as time went on. And maybe part of it was because of the Kennedy challenge, I don't know. Um, but uh, when they were running, it was hard to distinguish them uh, now, I think that the differences really began to be emphasized in the Carter-Reagan race in, in 1980. Reagan was, now, Goldwater was an exceptional uh, candidate in lots of different ways, but he was not even typical of the Republican Party, the broader Republican Party, the base of the Republican Party, which was much more moderate in 1964. But Reagan really did represent the base of the party. Uh, arguably had at least half in 1976 and then in, uh, when he challenged Ford. And then in 1980, uh, he and his uh, compatriots there took over the Republican Party. So I would say from Reagan on, you have to look at our two parties differently. Uh, they were carving out different messages about different issues. Uh, Republicans uh, discovered and encouraged social issues and used those social issues, you know, from abortion to gun control and everything we can think of. Um, and then it got, uh, you, you put uh, uh, extra powered gasoline in the engine, starting with, with uh, Gingrich, really in 1994, that Republican revolution for Gingrich and his people moved the Republican Party well to the right. And now, of course, we look back on that with fondness because Republicans yeah. under Gingrich were actually more moderate than the Tea Party people uh, in 2010 who were more moderate than the ones in charge today. So <laughs> living, in, living in Britain, I compared it to uh, labor and Tories. Uh, because they had also drifted apart. At one point, it was difficult to distinguish between them, although class-based politics is different, and they represented different classes, and, and therefore most of the conflict was about economic issues rather than anything else. And then they really uh, drifted far apart, and they still are. I'd say they, they are, you know, if not 180 degrees apart, then maybe 130 um, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting close. We're getting close. Seems to me like we're a lot closer than just close. I, I think we are 180. Um, I live through all of those things that you mentioned um, and, and see the divisions. Is there any hope that we could get back to a functioning Republican Party that we could have debates with and discuss issues with? to get back to some form of bipartisanship or is it hopeless right now? Well, I'm, I never say hopeless. And I always say at some point in the future, because you can't be wrong. I mean, that's thousands of years potentially. So at some point in the future, uh, it, it will happen. But I'll tell you how practically it could happen and would happen. And that is if the Republicans were repudiated with a series of landslide defeats. Now, is that practical given our nonpartisan or our, our uh, hyperpartisan status today where we're so polarized? No, it's, I don't think it I don't think that can happen. I don't think we're in a position to ever have much of a landslide. 
But if if the Republicans continue along this Trump uh, track, and that continues after Trump moves along one way or the other, um, it's um, you know it's possible. I think you'd want to consider that possibility because parties do learn from their defeats. Republicans learned from the Goldwater defeat. Uh, Democrats learned from 1980, 84, and 88, which were three disasters in a row. And while I think the party was more liberal than the Bill Clinton who appeared in 1992, they were willing to go along with uh, the Clinton, quote, new Democrat philosophy because they were desperate. You know, usually, look, one, you can survive one hit on the head with a two by four and not be phased by it. And two hits, you really sit back and think. In three hits, you're ready for something new. You want to move, at least, to get away from the two-by-four. So the more of those you have, the more likely it is that a party will change. And the Trump future is not a future at all for the Republican Party. I really believe that. Looking at demographic trends, population trends, they're not going to be able to accumulate even the plurality they need to win the Electoral College. That's their great advantage is the Electoral College, and that's going to fade with time if they stay on this current track. Now, a lot of Republicans think uh, if Trump loses this year, they will move along from Trump because they'll have to. Arguably, they've had three defeats in a row. He won the Electoral College in the first one. He nearly won it in the second, but lost by 7 million votes, and we'll see what what, uh, November holds. So that might happen. That might be the way it's done. But it's also possible, since the Trump people have taken over the Republican, uh, the Republican machinery just about everywhere, that a Trump-like character will come to the fore with the same positions and the same kind of verbal outrages and so on. I, I just I don't know what will happen. I could see it going in either direction or probably other directions we haven't discussed. I want to ask you two questions, but. I want to go back to what you said about the Electoral College is actually good. Uh, Most people would like to eliminate the Electoral College and go back to direct election. Uh, Why do you think that's been a savior for us? Well, I hope I didn't say it was good. When did I say that? (laughs) Maybe at some point in my career. It was an an advantage. Oh, no. What I I said, I I wrote a book about constitutional change in... uh, Yes. 2007. And I had 23 changes to the Constitution. And I was trying to present ideas in a way that might be appealing enough to at least be considered. I wasn't foolish enough to believe that these things were going to happen. And sure enough, my influence is great enough so that not one of the 23 has come about. But I'm sure by the by the year, you know, 3000, we're going to have quite a number of those 23. I'm confident of and I know you two would agree with me. Uh, you won't be around either. So it, there's no cost to you for telling me that it will happen. But on the Electoral College, I said, I borrowed Jesse Jackson's old phrase, uh, mend it, don't end it. Uh, because it it does reinforce federalism. And that is a plus for our society. We see that now because of Trump. Uh, you can have different systems in different places. And we may really need that over the next four years if Trump gets back in. Uh, so right. undergirding federalism is is a reason to do it. And uh, giving a little bit more influence to smaller states is a reason to do it. 
But my proposal, which was for adding electoral votes in three tiers to the 10 highest populated states and then the next 15, and then the bottom ones wouldn't lose any electoral votes, but proportionately they would be at more of a disadvantage than they are now. What, what practically would that have done? It would have meant that you could have had a 2,000. You could have had one candidate losing the popular vote by a half million, which at the time we thought was a lot of votes. You know, the Bush-Gore race, it was 539,000 in the end. Seemed like a lot of votes at the time. Compared to 3 million in 2016, compared to 7 million in 2020, it, it's a small difference in a, in a uh, continental country. But you would have eliminated the possibility of a candidate losing by 3 million and still winning the White House, much less losing by 7 million and still winning the White House. So that was my feeble attempt at compromise, which pleased neither side, kind of reminds me of immigration. So it went nowhere. But no, I tried. So on that note, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, we want to ask you more about um, that that book, A More Perfect Constitution, because a lot of what you're saying, and, and I think a lot of the recommendations are very relevant now. And I'm wondering, are there any um, additional ones that you think um, you know apply to right now? You mentioned immigration. Um, any other sort of amendments you would you would make to the Constitution? Well, yeah, I changed the Senate representation. Look, when the founders established that principle, we didn't have a popular vote. That wasn't a consideration. The South was worried about treating their slaves who were non-humans in their view, getting credit for having them in the state, which that's exactly the way it worked out. So they got additional representation in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College. But in the Senate, uh, they wanted equal representation regardless of population. And that's what they got. In those days, the most populated state versus the least populated state, it was a ratio of two and a half to one. Well, to me, that's wrong. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be two and a half to one, but you can live with it. Today, California, 38 times the population of Wyoming, they couldn't be more different as states. Their values are completely different. And each of them has two senators. And people say, well, there are liberal small states too. You know, there's Vermont and there's Rhode Island and, and so on. Yes, there are some liberal small states, but the rules of the Senate encourage a relatively small number of senators to be able to block almost anything. That They can stretch it out at the very least and usually block any kind of progressive reform if they want to, depending on the numbers. So I proposed again that we have tiers of states depending on population and nobody loses a senator everybody keeps two but you add one if you're in that 15 group in the middle and you add two if you're in the top 10 and it changes every every 10 years population you know the ninth and 10th and 11th states may change uh, positions so again it's it's a compromise it's not uh uh, it can we can revise it in various ways but it's certainly better than what we have now yeah. So we'll put a link to that book in our show notes, but there's another book I want to ask about, and we'll put a link to that as well. And that's the one about JFK. Um, and your conclusion about the assassination, I'm just wondering if you've been following uh, Paul Landis, a Secret Service agent who accompanied the president's car on that day, um, and his coming forward this, well, last year now, in 2023, um, with some new evidence. Does that affect your analysis of who did the shooting and how many shooters there were? 
Well, I, I certainly took a look at it, and you know, this has been a an obsession of mine since the day of the assassination. And I was I was young then, but I have read everything there is to read starting in the 1960s. And I read a lot of inaccurate stuff, by the way, published in some of those first books that were that were uh, sensational and which became bestsellers and I think misled the American people about what actually happened. Uh, anyway, about Paul Landis, I have I have very good sources. I don't want to get into the names uh, here, but um, I have very good sources, including uh, other Secret Service agents who were in the same car as Paul Landis and who were up front rather than uh, in the back as he was. And he did, he turned around as everybody else did because the shots really did appear to be coming and I think did come from the school book depository building. I find parts of his story to be hard to believe. And my reaction to that was reinforced by uh, some of those other Secret Service agents who felt very strongly about this and who had known about this for years and had been talking with Paul about what to do and how to do it. And and uh, they are very unhappy. Let's just put it that way. Now, they're all in their 80s or 90s, and it's been so many years. Why didn't he bring this up sooner? That's not what his report said a month after the assassination. You just, it's strange credulity to believe his story that, you know, he found this bullet in the backseat. Come on. I, I don't know. I don't think he's, I don't think he's making it up, though that is a possibility. Uh, but you've had so many years pass and so many events in his life and the life of the country and the life of, of uh, the story of John F. Kennedy and that horrible day in Dallas, and I've been I've been to Dallas way a dozen times plus over the years, and sometimes multi days. And I've talked to about everybody who's still living, I think, who was there in in Dealey Plaza. There are also a lot of people who claim to be in Dealey Plaza who weren't, by the way. Anyway, I'm going on at great length. If you start me on that, we're going to have to go on for several hours, and we'll never get to anything else. But oh, okay, answer, then we should move on to something else. But Jill, I don't. I, I, I don't. Like it hasn't. It hasn't changed my my view. I believe yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald did the shooting. What we will never know is whether anybody encouraged Oswald or provided him with the tools necessary or money necessary to go down to Mexico City. That was a very strange episode. Six weeks before the um, assassination, he was a he was a terribly disturbed and odd person. Uh, and and we don't know what his motives were, thanks to that idiot Jack Ruby. Uh, for those who are Victor's age and may not be aware oh, of this, Victor knows all about it. Victor knows. Well, Victor is that rare human being who's actually older than I am in his. <laughs> it's true in my soul. But but Your for those soul. of his generation who may not know. Um, the when President Kennedy was assassinated by gunshot, he was in an open car in Dallas, and there has been a long debate about whether there was one shooter or two, whether Lee Harvey Oswald, who definitely was at least a shooter, if not the only shooter, um, whether he was part of a communist plot, whether he was, I mean, and nobody knows because Jack Ruby 
shot him as he was being transferred between, I'm, I'm, you probably know exactly where, but he, he was being transferred and Ruby shot him. Yeah, so, the old jail. So yeah, and, it, and, and it was only chance. 48 hours later. They hadn't had much of a chance to interview him. Uh, they hadn't had the right people interviewing him for the most part. And right. it's, it's just a tragedy. But can I just add one thing? I always try to add this. Uh, most of my book, large majority, is about what Kennedy actually did, his career and his presidency. And then... The, the longest section is about legacy, how it affected all the succeeding presidents and congresses and others who are interested in politics and government. That's what we ought to be remembering. There's too much discussion of the assassination and not enough about what he really did. I mean, without, without him and without the programs he proposed, and frankly, the assassination itself, Lyndon Johnson would never have been able to get all that legislation passed by Congress. So let's remember that part. It's more important than the assassination, as important as the assassination was. So let's move to the current state of affairs. And Victor, did you have a question? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and let's let's talk about what's happening now. I mean, you study elections and primaries as they happen. What do you think makes this year, 2024, different from the last presidential election? What are you looking out for? <laughs> well, what makes it different? Uh, yes, it may be the same matchup. I think it will be, and it's obvious to everybody now, but uh, it's the fact that we've never had a candidate uh, who'd been charged with even one felony, much less, you know, <laughs> 91 counts. Uh, this is right. it's beyond unheard of. Uh, I just, I can't imagine that we're in this position and that millions, tens of millions are considering voting for someone as deeply flawed, I almost said totally flawed, as, as Donald Trump. It just, it blows my mind. I could never have imagined that our country would become this. And, and it's scary. I'm sorry, it is scary. Because the, sec the second term, who knows when he'll really step down. I mean, he's already made clear he doesn't want to give up power. If he gets back in, who's to say we'll have an election in 2028? Uh, who's to say who's going to be around him? I think they'll end up being real radicals, just extremists and people who who have one God and the God is Donald Trump and his word is God's. And think about what that means and what could happen uh, internationally, not just nationally. I, I'm just stunned that we're in this position. And again, I cannot believe that so many good people I know a lot of them personally. They're good people, but they are afraid. They are afraid. They will not stand up and be counted. And to me, they're worse than some of the people who have been assisting Trump and who were deranged to begin with. These are, these are people who know better. They know better. And they don't care. They care more about their own career and not, not being destroyed by by Donald Trump than they do about the future of the country. That's going back to JFK. Uh, if we did a new edition of Profiles in Courage, it would be even thinner than the first edition, at least on the Republican side. Exactly. Well, I have a very quick follow-up question, um, which is you recently had Liz Cheney at UVA Center of Politics. And no, no, I, no, I, I no, no, no. She is our professor of practice. This is permanent. Oh, she's she oh, is, is professor of proud. I'm very proud of that. It's the best hire I've ever made. And I apologize Ooh. to the rest of my staff. 
but she is the best hire I've ever made. She is terrific. By the way, she's changed a lot, <laughs> but we don't want to get into that now. Uh, she's she's learned a lot from what has happened to her party, and it's it's made her think about a lot of things. And I'm I'm proud of her for doing it. She's wonderful in the classroom, willing to consider other ideas and arguments from from uh, young people who don't share her worldview at all, or at least the old worldview that she had. So uh, it's, it has been wonderful. And she's tireless. You know, she, she did 14 events for us in, in a day and a half. I mean, that's, that's what she can wow. do. Uh, oh and that's, that's from politics. You know, politicians, well, for the most part, work hard. They work hard. Yeah. We don't give them credit for that, but they work hard. Well, that sounds amazing. And maybe you can tell her that we'd love to talk to her and have her explain how she's changed. That would be a really interesting thing to I'll, hear. I will certainly tell her, and I've got to, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, we've passed along well over 200 invitations to her. People oh, think I, I direct her. No, no, she she runs her own schedule. And basically she she says, uh, you know, thank you so much for hiring me. And now I need to get on to my next event. She's not going to do what I ask her to do necessarily, but I'll be happy to pass it along. Great, thanks. So let's turn to your crystal ball a little bit and some very specific questions that maybe you haven't thought about or can't answer, but this idea about Trump not debating Haley um, or Biden, what do you think is gonna happen? Is he gonna be forced to debate Haley? No, the, the, the nomination battle is over. It's very useful for Democrats to have her out there. She should be encouraged to stay in for as long as possible because she's crossed the Rubicon. You know, at first she wouldn't, she'd barely mention Trump, much less say anything negative about him. You know, whether you, whether or not, you know, you like him or what, what all this crap she was saying to begin with, she's crossed the Rubicon and she is coming up with attacks and lines that can be inserted directly into Democratic TV ads in the fall. And it has more credibility coming from a Republican minority woman. And, and she's well-recognized. Now that Democrats know who she is because she appeared on Saturday Night Live. So, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a tool for Democrats to use in the fall, she's fantastic. And notice she's getting Democratic money. She's getting a lot of anti-Trump money. And these are wealthy people who don't usually throw good money after bad, but yes. they're doing it because they want to send a message about Donald Trump and they're sending it. And why shouldn't it happen? All the Republicans supporting Trump are sending money to RFK Jr. by the millions. It's only fair, don't you think? Right. And she was criticized for, um, or actually Saturday Night Live was criticized for making a joke about her statement about not saying slavery. Um, so that was an interesting response. It's a comedy show. It's a comedy show. Uh, Look, people thought it wasn't funny to make fun well, of the fact that she wouldn't admit that slavery had a role in the well, Civil War. outrageous. But Jill, remember something. She knew the answer to that right in the beginning. Why did she refuse to say the first thing that popped into her head, slavery? She wouldn't say it because she knows that a large group in the Republican Party are white supremacists who live in the South and, and other places, unfortunately. 
They don't want to hear anything about that. They don't want anything negative said about their Confederate heroes. You know, I'm in Charlottesville and Robert E. Lee's statue uh, caused the death of one person and, and damage to many, many others, not to mention the institutions. It's there and it's it belongs to the Republican Party. Democrats don't have that element anymore. They once owned it, but that was decades and decades ago. Now it's it's the Republican property. That's why she wouldn't mention slavery. And she still doesn't admit the truth. That's, she didn't just forget about it. She wouldn't say it so she wouldn't offend those white supremacists and the nationalists that I saw parading right in front of my home here on UVA's lawn about 100 yards uh, in that direction. They're, they're all for Trump. And they're yeah. not for Haley. I can tell you that much. She can, that's why uh, the, what she's doing won't help her. She is, uh, she's uh, pretending that she's open to their ideas, and I don't think deep down she is, but she would be responsive to Republicans who want that sort of view represented. Yeah, I, I think of something that George Will once said, and I don't really find myself agreeing with him much, but he was on ABC, I think it was like a month or two ago, and he said the reason why so many Republicans are acting the way that they are is because they're scared of their own voters. And um, I, I don't know if, there, like, is there any way to... You know, if the voters still say the same, what, do you think there's going to be more people like Liz Cheney or is it going to be sort of like what we've seen with Nikki Haley where there's this reluctance to admit the truth? Well, you have an enormous number of Liz Cheneys. You have Adam Kinzinger, you have Mitt Romney, and I've just run out of people who are like Liz Cheney. Uh, so that's three. That's three times the number you mentioned. Uh, I, I'm being sarcastic. Obviously, they're not there. Now, privately, they're there. Oh, they'll sidle up to you. Even in Congress, they'll sidle up to you and say, can you believe that we're facing this again? It's just terrible. And they wring their hands and, oh, I wanted so much to see, you know, X or Y or Z be the nominee. And then they go right around the corner. And one actually did this to me. Went right around the corner, did a TV interview in which he praised Donald Trump to the skies. How can anybody respect that? Well, as you said earlier, this is the problem that is worse than him is all the people who know better, but continue to support him. But let's go on with your predictions, because I don't know, have you ever predicted outcomes of hurt cases? Because right no. now, as you mentioned- No, I stay away from the court. Predicting elections is easy compared to predicting court cases, although I will be shocked if the Supreme Court takes Trump off the ballot. This is a- an extremely conservative court. And Roberts can be wishy-washy sometimes, but the other ones, the other five are pretty solid, certainly the three that Trump appointed and the other two are just as, if not more conservative. So I, I just can't see that happening. That's just my guess, you know, we'll, we'll see. Let me say as a lawyer that the law is pretty clear and they're gonna have to really twist themselves to avoid saying that the 14th Amendment means what the 14th Amendment says. But anyway. Judge, Lud Judge Ludig certainly believes that. He's another, he's he's just taken a one-year uh, one fellowship here as well with the Karsh Center for Democracy. You know, they're very pleased about that and should be, Karsh Institute of Democracy. Uh, so yeah. we're, we're, we're becoming home for uh, a lot of people who care about uh, the Constitution and American values and recognize that Trump is the opposite of American values. So uh, I want to ask you about, uh, you mentioned a little bit before the demographic shifts that are happening right now, and um, we don't really talk too much about 
independence. And I want to get your take on sort of, do you think there are enough of them this time around compared to 2020 to make a difference? And if so, what is the right message to them from Democrats, from Republicans, that this focus on democracy, a focus on Trump? What do you, what do you think is sort of like, wh- how big are they? And then, and then what message um, will appeal to them? Did you say independence? Independence, yes. Yeah, yeah independence. So you cut out on me briefly. Uh, look, I laugh when every year when Gallup, which no longer even polls or does horse race polling for president because they screwed up 2012 so badly, you know, declaring Mitt Romney the victor in mid-October, shades of 1948. But I laugh every year when they come out with that poll showing that, you know, 44% of Americans are independents, just laughable. What Americans are is hidden partisans. You know, everyone likes to say, uh, nobody runs me. I don't listen to the party bosses. I make up my own mind. I just happen to always vote Republican or Democratic. That's my decision. That's not their decision. So partisanship has become so important for most people that I would estimate, and, and there's a lot of data that supports this, somewhere between 92 and 95% of Americans have a party lean and the research is fascinating because it suggests that those who who are uh, hidden leaners actually vote for the party as much as the strong identifiers. So it's it's internally having a lean that matters. So let's say you're left with five or six percent hardcore independence. Will they determine the election? Is the Pope Argentinian? Uh, you know, forty three thousand votes in twenty twenty in those key states. We only have six or eight truly competitive states, they determined uh, the election. And fortunately, they didn't go with Trump, but it was closer than it ever should have been. But that's because of the Electoral College. So you better believe they matter. Now, what do they respond to? Uh, The independents, the hardcore independents, five, six percent that are hardcore, you can divide them more or less in half. It may be 55, 45, it may be 60, 40. But when you divide them into two, the two groups, One includes some of the most informed and active political citizens. They pay attention to everything, and they truly are independent for whatever reasons. Often it's that they had one parent as a Democrat and one parent who was a Republican. Some of the research in this area is is fascinating. The other half are what what a famous study in political science uh, back in the 50s called the dregs of the electorate. Uh, They know nothing. They, they vote maybe because, you know, they're told to or they're driven there or, the, you know, that's the one thing they've absorbed about citizenship. They have an obligation to vote. They don't follow politics. And so they're influenced by personality or, you know, they respond to something they've seen on TV, maybe right at the end or an influential relative or friend says, vote for so-and-so, vote for so-and-so. Um, and that's the scary part to think that if it's really, really close, the 3% who are, quote, the dregs of the electorate might determine who's president. Uh, so your question is a very good one, but it it's not easily answered. But we need to remember it's a small group, but a critical group. And you can appeal to some on the basis of issues because they really keep up with everything. And you've got to think about that other group, too, that's going to vote, even though they follow next to nothing. You've got to find ways to give them the pizzazz needed to go and vote for your candidate. How's that for no clear answer? But that's well, the way it is. Seems like Taylor Swift is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> she, 
<laughs> Unfortunately, well, that would she, that would do it. But you, you would you, think that she would be goaded into endorsing Biden at this point. I think she would have anyway. Yeah. You know, she's she's revealed her politics and she does have that program. You all and probably Victor in particular has kept up with it. A vote isn't it a voter uh, registration for young people? Yeah. Doesn't she yeah. have something ongoing yeah. there? Well, she certainly has the incentive now to spend a lot more of her billions on this. You know, it would be a tax write-off if it was structured the right way. A hundred million dollars is nothing to her. It would make a difference in terms of young people turning out. And and Victor, I know Jill, you agree with me on this. Victor has done a wonderful job in in uh, taking young people as a group and explaining them to those of us who are just tiny little bit older, tiny little bit older, you know, 50, 60, 70 exactly. years older. And they're, and and that helps. And it helps them. And uh, just keep it up. You're doing a great job. Oh, so thank you, you so much. Said, you said Trump was the worst president ever. Yes. Uh, and so I'm just wondering if you can give our audience a sense of what you think makes him the worst and how Biden can convince those in-between voters that he is? Well, we've had a lot of mediocre presidents and we've had a few real stinkers. And we all know, you know who they are, Nixon back, although Nixon was very talented. Yes. And if only he hadn't been twisted by some events, even in the 50s, you know, running for VP, and then he felt the Kennedys cheated, and that's how they beat him. <laughs> Maybe they did. You never know. But and then uh, when he got in, he felt that you know the Democrats were prosecuting him for for what he had been left by Lyndon Johnson, and and there were lots of reasons for him to be bitter. The, the tragedy is he finally spoke the truth when he left office. So that final speech, I show it to students every year for just the section when Nixon was saying, when you hate others, you ruin yourself. I'm paraphrasing, but he really got it. And if people listen to that and apply it to their own lives, we'll be a better society. Anyway, uh, so Nixon, you know, Warren Harding and Ulysses Grant, but they were incompetent. You know, I, I hate to say Millard Fillmore because somebody on Twitter pretends to be Millard Fillmore and he'll somehow find out about this and then I'll I'll get 50 tweets about how what a great president Millard Fillmore was. Anyway, they were incompetent. Have we had evil presidents? Well, some people at the time, including me, would probably have said Nixon. Uh, with the passage of time, uh, I would say we, we have... I think overwhelmingly, maybe exclusively, had presidents who who wanted to do the right thing for the country, not just for themselves or not with themselves as the center of the universe. Now, who am I describing? Donald Trump. It's all about him. The, the fact that we're here or the country is here is is a you know an anecdote to him. No, that is, it should be the focus of any president. What is best for the people? Even if they get angry and say, no, this isn't best for us. If you can explain it and uh, give your reasoning and so on, then it's it's okay. Uh, but to me, Trump, I'm not going to call him evil the way some people do, although that's certainly my impression. But that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is his incredible selfishness and obsession with himself and his own interests, it doesn't really even extend to many of his family members. 
<laughs> Can you imagine what they go through? Uh, really, we don't know. We don't know 10% of it. Uh, but it's the fact, again, as I started out with, the fact that tens of millions of people are willing to vote for this guy, put their futures in the hands of this extremely selfish, massively egotistical person. It's just frightening. It's just frightening. I, I would never leave the United States, but I'll tell you, I, I, for a long time, I thought I was going to retire and go back to, to Great Britain. And actually, Trump has deprived me of many of my retiring years. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't do it now. But I can see why people, if they have the means, might well want to find another place to live rather than having to wake up at 4 a.m. and look at his damn tweets every morning the way I did for four years. And I bet you, you both did it, too. Absolutely. And, and you also, you mentioned earlier that he threatens the Constitution. We don't know when he would leave office if he gets it again. And we have just seen in Senegal, a president said, we're not going to have the election. I don't want to have the election now and called off the election. So everybody says, oh, it can't happen here. But oh, it happened. It happened in 2020 and 2021. It's already happened. What do people need? to see the obvious. He was trying to pull a coup. That's what it was. It was a self-coup because he was already in power, but it was a coup d'etat. Uh, so he's absolutely capable of it. Or I could see him appointing Don Jr. to continue. And because oh, we God. have so many problems oh. in our in our voting system. No, no, Jill, don't laugh. Victor, oh. don't laugh. We have so many problems in our voting system. We've got to repair those. Now, it may take a few years. In the interim, I'll remain president with the help of Don Jr. or Eric or whoever it is. I think Ivanka's on the outs with, with Trump now, but um, I could easily see that. Also, he believes that Article 2 gives him the power to do anything. He, he can run roughshod over all the, the checks and balances, everything the founders said. Doesn't matter because he's never read about it, for one thing. You think he's ever read the Federalist Papers? It is to laugh. No. He's read he's read books about Hitler, but he hasn't read the Federalist Papers. Yeah. yeah. And when you say it can't happen here, that's usually said about Nazis taking over. And they did it a little bit at a time and not yeah. at once. And that's what's happening if he gets back. It'll be a little bit and then a lot will happen. Um, let me ask about one specific election, not just the overall House and Senate, but there's a specific election next week. Um, for George Santos's seat. And the candidates are um, the person who held the, the seat before he lost to Santos and a registered Democrat who uh, is an, was um, an Israeli soldier uh, running as a Republican. And any predictions on what that outcome is going to be? Well, it, we've been looking at that pretty carefully because it, it is, you don't want to say that anything is an absolute indicator of what will happen months later. And this is another example of it. You can forget about special elections quickly. Uh, but it is an indication about the immigration issue, because that's mainly what the Republican seems to be using. Uh, it's, it's close. It really is close. And uh, Kyle Kondik, in my operation, the managing editor of the Crystal Ball, who's terrific, as is J. Miles Coleman, uh, they do a great job there. Uh, Kyle has told me that that uh, it's it is tight as a tick. I mean, their their private uh, private uh, soundings indicate that it's going to be very close. Um, 
he believes and we believe, I think generally, that the Democrat has a tiny edge, but it's not much of one. So that's where we are right now. And the election's a week off. Well, eight days, I guess, but a week off. So and things will happen at the end and money will be spent in ways we didn't imagine and all kinds of nasty things will go out that aren't true. Uh, maybe AI will be used. Who knows? Uh, we, we've got we got a year of AI coming uh, as well. So yeah. it's it's close. And for right now, it matters because it's going to help to define the immigration debate. Although, is it really a debate now that politics has been chosen over policy? Now, I, I'm from a time when policy often dominated politics, right. at least until like six months before the actual election. No, now we have a year and a half of politics and maybe six months of policy right in the beginning of a Congress. So it's a, it's a year and a half of politics with the first six months being policy. It's sad. That's not the way a country, a good country, uh, with the riches of the United States should operate. But that's where we are. It, it's it's so depressing to see all the differences um, between then and now. Um, but now, Victor, I, I want to transition. We, we need you to be an optimist. We want you yeah. to project the optimism to young people because they, you know, my students, I always, I kid them. I say, I don't know what you all are going to do because my generation, and Jill, you're too young, but I'm in the baby boomer. Uh, generation. <laughs> and uh, and as you, Jill, I think you followed enough to know that our generation has solved everything, really. There's nothing left for the younger generation to do. And then people bring up, you know, climate change and gun violence and this and that and the other. And I realize there are things for them to do and that we're depending on them to do because we have utterly failed. We have completely failed. Even I'm the from the don't trust solved. any. What's that? Even, even the things that we solved have come back again. We yes, thought it solves civil rights. It is yeah. not solved. The they, Republican Party is going after every the voting rights. Even I mean, it, it's it's absurd. Um, I mean, I, I'm optimistic. Well, I'm optimistic in the sense that I think young people will still turn out um, thanks to efforts like yours at UVA and, and getting young people engaged. But as we're seeing right now, and this is going to lead me into talking about polling, um, there's a lot of noise around polling. There are polls that show that young people prefer Trump over Biden, which to me is completely absurd. There are polls showing that Trump is leading Biden, which as we've talked about, how could that be the case? But as someone who looks at polling and as someone who um, does a lot of polling yourself, what should we be making about the polls? And more importantly, what sh what are the reliable polling sort of methods? Um, what should people like when when you're looking at a poll? What's what's a good poll? What's a bad poll? My God, that, that's a two and a half hour lecture, Victor. <laughs> I mean, I can't even begin to cover all those subjects. But I, I'll tell you this: uh, I went from believing in polling, and this was quite some time ago, believing almost completely in it. It was wonderful and becoming more far more science than art. I now believe it's at least as much art as science. It may be more art than science. And as we all know, a lot of art is garbage. So that applies to polling as well. Uh, now, how do you tell a good poll from a bad poll? Well, for a while, in between believing polling was the ultimate and, and being very cynical now about it, I believe polling averages would, uh, would not solve the problem, but be a good indicator that when you take all the polls together, it washes out some of the air. I don't believe that anymore because we have a lot of phony polling outfits that nonetheless get added into the, uh, the polling averages and you can't really trust the polling averages anymore. 
So you're left with believing in the polls that tell you what you want to hear, which is very dangerous. That's very, very dangerous. There are ways to do it well, but it's costly. You, you have to be willing to spend a lot of money. You combine uh, certainly reaching cell uh, young people. You're never going to get a good sample of young people without reaching cell phones. But landlines uh, reach older people. I still have a landline. Uh, and that makes me, in my, I have a big class. I asked who, who has a landline? Not one hand <laughs> went up except for mine. And that tells you all you need to know right there. And there's some online ways to uh, gather some additional uh, polling uh, questionnaire answers and, and work it into what you have from, from uh, phones and, and uh, both kinds of phones. But it's tough to do. It's really tough to do. And so that's where the art comes in. And as I suggested, a lot of the art isn't reliable. So, you know, what do you do? I'll tell you what I do. Of course, I never miss a poll. Of course, I go through it because I'm addicted. And the only uh, the only way I'm going to stop being addicted is by dying. And I don't tend to do that quite yet. So I'm there. And uh, but I forget about them quickly. Now, age helps. I forget almost everything within 48 hours. So I don't remember any poll longer than 48 hours. And I think that actually helps me analyze politics better because I don't focus on individual numbers that drive me wild. And I mentioned before we came on air that that your um, tweets there on X, you have a lot of very good tweets in which you analyze why these polls are poorly done and how they left out young people and didn't do this and didn't do that. And all, all of that's true. And it's well worth having that, that argument. But often you get lost in the muck of that kind of debate. And it's better just to glance at these polls, take them in, make sure you look at all of them, not just, well, except for the crazy ones that are put out by partisan organizations. I never, never look at them. Uh, look at the, look at those polls, think about them a little bit, and then move on to the headlines of the day and the ads of the day and the candidate events of the day, because they're also important, more important than polling numbers. I would say it's also important to look at the results of elections, where, for example, yeah. Biden just won 96% of the vote in South Carolina. 96.2, Jill. 96.2. Which, yeah, which beat a poll that had him at like 20, 26 points below. Yeah. So it, it's, um, it, it's not only commentary on polling, but it is a commentary on facts matter. What matters? What yeah. matters? But, but your co current polling results, as I looked at your website, show that no one will get 270 votes in the Electoral College. So going back to my question about the Electoral College, um, first of all, this far out, how accurate is a prediction about November? And secondly, what would happen if no one gets 270 and no one wins? It goes to the House where you would have a really horribly mismatched, uh, sort of unfair result. So let's just talk about that getting to 270. Well, we, we all know the um, really close states. The sad part of this is that we can call 40 states sitting here right now, assuming it's reasonably competitive. You know, if you end up having a Lyndon Johnson landslide, which as I've said, I don't think it's possible anymore, then clearly uh, it would be a different uh, universe. But uh, calling 40 states is depressing. 
you know, in, in the 60 election, half the states were competitive. They were all jumping from state to state to state. And they were and the, even the final votes showed that it was reasonably competitive. We don't have that anymore. So we're down to really six to eight states. And if it turns competitive, maybe we'll get to 10 out of 50. Uh, and that's where it's going to matter. And every vote is going to matter, which is why every day matters, even though it's nine months away for the candidates and particularly for one sitting in the White House. Every day matters and repetition matters. You can't just announce something once and say, check that off the list. We did it. And now everyone knows about it. No, everyone doesn't know about it. Most people don't know about it. You have to repeat it constantly. And that's for every single thing. That should be obsessing your work and your mind during the last few months of a campaign. And I, I even consider this to be the last few months. We're in that final uh, stage because we already essentially know the two candidates. Um, so anyway, it's it should be reasonably close. In, in a perfect world, it certainly would not be, but it is probably going to be a very close election. Uh, and because uh, Biden has been governing and making enemies by governing, the Democrats have to focus more on reminding people what it was like to live under Donald Trump every day for four years. And actually, you got to add in the year of the campaign because that was horrible, too. And now we've got he's been campaigning ever since, you know, a few months after January 6th. Uh, as far as the the uh, getting to 270 or having a 268 to 268 tie, which is or 269 to 269 tie, I think it's very unlikely. But if it happens... There's a bomb in the Constitution that people haven't paid attention to, and some year it's going to go off. And I hope not obliterate us, but it's going to cause a lot of damage. And that is going into the House and giving every state one vote, one vote for president. California has one vote. Wyoming has one vote. You just go through. Imagine. Imagine. And if it's a small delegation and say you have one Democrat and one Republican, they tie, and that state will have zero vote for president. Think about what that's going to mean. You need 26. Because of the structure of the House of Representatives and the way we allocate representatives, one per state, one, a minimum of one per state, even if they don't have the population to support one representative, it is much easier for the Republicans to get 26 votes and elect a president than it is for Democrats. Right now, the Republicans would have a majority, and one assumes that they would be able to push Donald Trump in. Now, we don't know for sure. Let's uh, look at the performance of this Republican Congress. Uh, to call it a clown show is to insult clowns, really. Uh, we've got to come up with another term. But they've been so bad that it is possible, possible, not probable yet, but it is possible that Democrats will have enough of a margin in enough states to get 26. But what a what a terrible prospect. And when that was put in the Constitution, again, we didn't have a popular vote. We didn't have popular votes until the 1820s. A few states had scatterings of popular votes, but it was the, 18, uh, the 1820s before we had popular vote. 1824 was the first presidential election with popular vote. You only had white males with property for the most part and in certain states of the right religion, incredibly, though it was prohibited from, from voting. So you had a handful of votes. So things are, are much better, though, as you mentioned, Jill, 
they're moving backwards, or at least they're trying to move backwards. So yeah, do I worry about that? I have nightmares about it. I really do. I have nightmares about it. But that's one of the reasons that I questioned you about the Electoral College, because that's what allows this to happen. And it is absurd for one vote per state and a teeny little, teeny percentage of the majority population could reach the outcome. Victor, last question before we run out of time. Yes, we're running short on time, but one one last question for you, which is um, about what you do to engage young people in politics. We usually end with advice for young people, but I'm actually going to ask you about advice to the professors, teachers, and adults out there who are trying to get young people in their lives involved in politics. What would you say to them? Well, my, my slogan for decades, despite everything, and even despite Trump, is politics is a good thing. I mean, it's it's how we organize society. It's how we make it better, ideally, or sadly, make it worse. And so you don't have a choice about politics unless you want to simply accept accept the choices made by everybody else. You want to you want to have your choices made by others. So once you make that case that this is how we make society better, what are your priorities? What do you care about? What do you think isn't being done that needs to be done? And then you say, well, there's only one way to do that. Probably the nonprofit groups can can play a role, but mainly it's it's government and politics. And once you get a young person in the door of a campaign or going to a convention or uh, even going with their parents as a young, a young child to vote on election day, if they if they vote in person, um, it can have a permanent effect on you. It, my dad, I got to tell you this, my dad, who was a World War II vet, it was in for the whole war. And thank goodness he survived. He was in the European theater and was in the thick of it all the way up to Berlin. But he really cared about politics and public affairs. And he was an immigrant child. They never had any money. It was, this wasn't the rich deciding it, it was important to control for our interest's sake. It was because it was the right thing to do. And I, I tell people I was the only five-year-old in the 1950s who knew flag etiquette. Uh, you know, because my father insisted that I learn all this. And every every time I moved, my housewarming gift was a flag to be flown on the porch. That's what my father gave me. He's he's long gone, unfortunately. But the point is, uh, he took me to the polls with him every time. For I don't remember how young I was, but I was pretty young when he was taking me to the polls. And uh, John F. Kennedy, we were Catholic, our Catholic. And because of that, we, uh, we really cared about Kennedy. There'd never been a Catholic president, and that mattered back then. Religion mattered a lot more than it does today, and it still matters today. And uh, John F. Kennedy incorrectly believed, because of some polling numbers from Lou Harris, who was his pollster, he believed that Virginia was competitive. Uh, and, and in the end, it wasn't a landslide. It's 5347, which is I consider competitive. Certainly it is today. But Kennedy decided to come into Virginia and into my home city of Norfolk on the Friday before the Tuesday election. Oh, my God. You know, it was like the Pope was coming. It was better than the Pope coming. And so yeah. he took me to the motorcade. There were no guards, by the way, which is something we noted on that day. No guards. He was sitting on the back of a of a Cadillac. And then there was a rally at Granby High School. We went to that. There were tens of thousands of people there. And we were in the back and I was on my dad's shoulder. They all looked like ants. I don't I didn't hear a thing except Kennedy say, 
Thomas Jefferson wouldn't want you to vote for Richard Nixon for president. That was that's the only line I remembered. But anyway, I, I've gotten way off. I'm like this. Uh, but it was so exciting. And I still remember every detail of it. And I've got a lot of paraphernalia displayed uh, downstairs in this pavilion. So students see it. When you And I was hooked from that moment on. I was hooked. And I took literature door to door. And I was, I was seven then. And I had a, a door slammed in my face by a woman that I knew a little bit. She bought candy from me for, for my school. And she said to me, uh, we do not support papists in this household. I didn't even know what a papist was. You know, I asked my father later, but it, it toughened me up at the age of seven. It's important to do things like that. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on. There's a lot more to this story. And we could take another hour if you'd like, but I suspect you have other things to do. No, it's well. It's, we could go on for many, many hours, but it's been such a great conversation. And uh, as you were talking, I'm reminded I tell Jill about um, what my high school government teacher told his class, which is sort of what you tell your students. Um, and he says to embrace the civics lifestyle and um, just to understand that politics and civics is everywhere around us, and um, we should make it a part of our lives and, and make it something that we we like to do. But um, Larry, I thank you so much. Add, for but somebody. Forward. Yeah. We had a recent guest who had, I thought, really good advice was for those who are overwhelmed by how many issues there are, pick the one you really care about and learn about that so that you can have informed conversations to convince other voters that this is the right outcome, whether it's guns or whether it's abortion, whatever your issue is, the Equal Rights Amendment, whatever it is, that's what you should learn and be able to talk about and get out the vote because this election will come down to it. Like you, I remember John Kennedy. I remember my first thing that involved me in politics was actually Adlai Stevenson when he <laughs> lost the second time. I was a teeny little kid, but I remember him saying, I'm too old to cry and too hurt to laugh. And um, <laughs> it, 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 it was my first involvement in politics. My parents involved me too, but um, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, and uh, we will look forward to another conversation on one of the many other issues that came up today. Well, it's a lot. Yes, it's been a lot of fun, and you two are very dedicated to, as you put it, Victor, your your teacher put it, the civics lifestyle. I love that. Now I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal <laughs> it, and and it's it's legal because I have told you that I'm going to steal it, and it's on tape. So that's I think under the law that makes it legal, right, Jill? You're the My lawyer. Teacher. My, my, my teacher would love that. My teacher would love that. Thank you so well, much, Larry. It's a, great, it's a great term. And I've enjoyed it uh, tremendously and look forward to being back with you. Thanks, everyone, for watching this episode of iGen Politics with Larry Sabato. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We'll be back next week for a brand new episode of iGen Politics. But in the meantime, you can find us wherever you follow your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, really wherever you listen, we are there. And be sure to rate and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And that helps other people find this episode as well, or our podcast as well. You can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Politicon. Be sure to like and subscribe there. And let us know what you think of this episode in the comments uh, as well. Uh, again, thanks everyone for watching or listening and we will see you next week with a brand new episode.